Hey, J. Crew, it's producer Josh Cross. As we wind up the Goyesha calendar for 2022, we wanted to say thank you for listening this year. We are so thankful for all of you listeners, letter writers, voicemail leavers, Facebook commenters, and more. We're taking the next couple of weeks off to prep for even bigger and better things in 2023. However, we're bringing you this last episode of the year to hold you over until then. Enjoy and shalom, friends. You may or may not know as a fan that I am the only non-bearded male employed by Unorthodox. I think I'm seeing for next year, Liel, Josh, Darone, and Robert all becoming mall Santa. I mean, if you just don't cut your beard now till ne- Christmas 2023, can you imagine how real bearded you'll be, Liel? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick with a special sidekick today. Hi, I'm here with Edith Cohen. Edith, say hi. Hey. She'll be ready to sub in for you next year at this time, right? Yes, yes, ideally, yes. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Leah Leibowitz. Hello to you, my friends. Hello. Ho, ho, ho. Today on the show, we're bringing you a very special Christmas episode. Our first Gentile of the Week is Faith Saley. That name might ring a bell because you know what? She's been a Gentile of the Week before. Also, you know her from CBS and NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and so forth. We had her on an episode of Unorthodox back in October. She talked about raising Jewish kids. And today, she returns to talk to us about being a Gentile mother of Jewish kids in the holiday season, a particularly interesting and sometimes fraught time to have an interfaith household. Our second GOTW is Donald Lawrence. He's a gospel music songwriter and producer. He was our guest at a live show in Chicago that we did with Jewish Federations of North America. And he's gentilic and genteel and gentile and gentle, I would say. He's all of those. (laughs) Have you ever had two Gentiles in a row? I don't think this has ever happened in the history of the show. We decided that on their big holiday, we would let two Gentiles on our show. It's like we had fusion yesterday in the news. They actually seem to be achieving breakthroughs on fusion. And now back-to-back Gentiles. What next? This is like this podcast version of like the the year of Shemitah. You know, every seven years, (laughs) the Jews take an episode off and let two Gentiles do the talking. (laughs) Well, the news I have for you, by the way, is also highly Gentilic. I want to run something by you. I I need your read on this because sometimes I am at sea in Gentile culture. Also known as... Culture. Culture. It's also known as America. My daughter, Anna, is a member of a community choir that performs a holiday concert that is not specifically Christian, but the choir rehearses at and has its Christmas, excuse me, holiday concert at a church, a fairly evangelical church. And at one point, four-year-old David was getting a little bit restless and running around. So during one of the songs, I took him out in the lobby of the church and we saw the bulletin board for the church's men's ministry, which is when men fellowship together. It's their the brother's club. Their, their kiddish club. Yeah. That's right. And it's it's what we would call a club. They call it a ministry. And on the bulletin board, the main thing they were advertising was the monthly men's breakfast, the men's ministry breakfast, which is on Saturdays, and the men get together and they fellowship and they, you know drink because it's five o'clock somewhere. And the there are pictures of the men, there are little photographs of the men fellowshipping over breakfast. And then there's a little poster, a flyer that's stapled on to the bulletin board that says, Saturday men's ministry breakfasts, we've got bacon. And, <laughs> you know, which is obviously I think in some Microaggression. sense- Microaggression. But I did feel like it was kind of a macroaggression as if to say, 
to any Jew or Muslim who walks into that space. We'd love to have you. We've got the bacon and you, sir, do not have so, okay. the bacon. <laughs> I really appreciate this discourse, fellowshipping about this. I think it's more like we're men. We got the beat. Like, like it's like there's so there's some kind of flex here, a masculinity flex being like. You're saying the emphasis here is like, we've got bacon. Yeah. Like we men got have bacon. bacon. We got bacon yeah. in our men's club. Stephanie Taylor Butnick. Yeah. At my very manly poker game last night, I raised this question. And actually a couple of the guys there, I think it might've been Hurwitz, might've been Polly. A couple of the guys there said, no, that's what's going on is it's that it's bacon. Like, look, it's the beef club. So it's like macho. You know, right. But here's my question about that. Of all of the beeves, which by the way, is the old fashioned plural of beef of all of the beeves. That is you it like B-O-E-V-E-S? No, it's not like, E-V-E-S. it's not like. Of all, of all pa- of the buffs. Pediatrician. No, <laughs> anesthesia. No, it's that of all of the beeves. Isn't bacon the least manly? It's a breakfast food. It's fried up into little dainty strips. Like if they had said men's breakfast, we've got T-bone steaks. No, what they should have said was men's breakfast. We've got brisket. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Also, we're in the men's club and we don't fellowship and we are at the synagogue. Dare I say. Second cut, but okay. Dare I say men's ministry breakfast. We've got sausage. Like that would yeah, I would sense, like that. Right? I would like that a lot more. I think that's what they were going for, to be perfectly honest. I love this. That, that is a very subtle form of advertising. We've, we've got the sausage here at the men's. Men's ministry. We've got the sausage. No, but it's an interesting, actually, I think, you know, countercultural reading of bacon, which you had assumed this place, almost totemic status as the sort of ur-masculine food. I mean, Ron Swanson and Parks and Rec, you know, orders all the bacon. All the bacon. I think you're starting. I think you're starting something. I, I don't want to compare you to Jesus Christ, Mark, but I think you're <laughs> starting like a brand new religion here, in which you're saying, "Come, all ye faithful, the bacon is a pretty girly meat, and it is time now for real men to indulge in steak." I mean, tis the season for comparisons like that. So you know, ho ho ho. The Christians are reclaiming the bacon, is what you're saying. They could have the bacon. You know, it is actually astonishing to me as someone who used to eat it copiously. How little I miss it. Like mm. I could go around like a deli or something in New York and smell it. I'd be like, I don't miss this at all. It's funny. I don't really eat bacon. I used to like, oh, like bacon, egg and cheese. And now as I've gotten older, I'm just like not that interested in bacon in a way where like sometimes you'd be at like a breakfast buffet and you're like, I could grab some like crappy bacon on my plate or I could just not and be fine. And so it's not I don't know that I'm like intentionally not eating pork. But maybe I am. Maybe it's all crept up on you. Hashem works in mysterious ways, Stephanie. Speaking of Hashem working in mysterious ways, instead of doing News of the Jews this week, I want to turn straight to this letter that we got because this letter could have come in any time of year, but it came in at just the right time of year because we were talking about mall Santas. And this woman happened to be listening to our show. It sounds like she's a super listener. And she wrote in and, well— we had no choice but to, to reach out and touch this listener and say, come on the show. And so I want to play you a phone call that we all did with the terrific leader in the Oregon chapter of the J. Crew, Jenny Lee. I'd like to welcome listener, J. Crew member, Jenny Lee from Corvallis, Oregon. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Would you read aloud the letter that you sent to us a few weeks ago? I would be happy to. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, I have been listening to and loving the podcast for years, but have never been moved to write in until now. 
I was just listening to this week's episode, Tough Talkers, when in the opening segment, you discussed the mall Santa phenomenon, and I knew I needed to write immediately. Yes, mall Santas do roll with their very own professional photographers, but the mall Santa industrial complex is much more sophisticated than that. There are entire organizations dedicated to operating mall Santa experiences, including corporate headquarters, professional real beard Santa organizations. There is, in fact, a fraternal order of real bearded Santas and squadrons of elves hired to assist Santa during the six weeks Thanksgiving to Christmas mall Santa season each year. Why does this Jewish girl know so much about mall Santas? Because my father worked as a mall Santa during the 2019 season. My mother, not to be left out, occasionally worked alongside him. Our family thought that it was absolutely wonderful and hilarious that my dad tried his hand at Santaing for a season. Although we did have to warn my then three-year-old daughter not to tell her non-Jewish friends that her grandpa was Santa. We didn't want her to inadvertently burst anyone's bubble about the guy in the red suit. A photo of my parents from my dad's posting is attached. Sincerely, Jenny Lee, also known by my Hebrew name, Rachel but Santa of Mrs. Claus. <laughs> Jenny, this might be the best letter we've ever received. And especially because, can you describe the picture that you attached with this? Yes. So the photo is of my dad in full Santa regalia with his real beard, no fake beards accepted, his long flowing gray locks in front of an enormous, like the biggest Christmas tree you've ever seen with my mom seated to his side in an elf costume, which was the outfit or uniform she wore when she worked with him at the mall. Let's talk about the real beard phenomenon. So there apparently is a community of the real bearded Santas, I gather from your letter, look down on the sort of fake snap-on bearded Santas with the elastic beard and all that stuff. Your dad, this is a serious beard. Oh, yes. He was dedicated to the beard. Have you always been the daughter of a bearded Santa-looking man? So I've always been the daughter of a bearded man, but it was a new level. The Santa beard level was a totally new level. He was a trim and neat bearded fellow for my entire life until the year he retired, which happened to be the same year he decided to go mall Santa. So he retired. He said, no more of this trim and neat guy. I'm sorry, Jenny, he didn't retire. He transitioned <laughs> to the yeah. real career he always wanted. <laughs> What do you mean yeah, retired? To the, to the career he was really born to have, obviously, as you can yeah. see from the photo. So I've always wondered, like, what happens when you're a kid and you go up to Santa and then you, like, sit on there? Like, you, what, what does he say to them? Like, is there a script he follows? Yeah, I mean, having never been a child who sat on Santa's lap, I'm, this is obviously secondhand. But what, <laughs> but what he's relayed to me is that, you know, the child comes up and they're seated with their family. First of all, there's often a lot of negotiating with the child to get the child to sit with Santa. <laughs> Um, sometimes involving tears and sometimes involving coercion. But at any rate, they get seated and, you know, I think it's what we all would expect, something sort of like, and what do you want for Christmas, little Timmy? And then the kid tells them and they snap the photo. They snap several photos, that's the policy, and then print them out on site and hope that the family will buy the merch as well. Now, did your dad ever share with you the story of the absolute worst Timmy or, you know, girl Timmy? He's ever had to deal with? Who's the biggest brat in the mall? Well, yeah, who's the Violet Beauregard of, of Santa kids? Right. Yeah, honestly, from what I can gather, it's more the parents than the children who are the Violet <laughs> Beauregards in this, in this uh, scenario. It's the parents who are just determined to get their kid to sit with Santa because they need that photo for the, you know, whatever, family calendar, the Christmas card or whatever it may be. But yeah, that was the most difficult part of the job for him was watching some of the parents try so hard 
to get their kid to sit. So the fact that when you wrote to us, you knew everything about the Santa industrial complex. Yeah, you we should have known. Or, that they're organizations of real bearded Santas and that they're elves for hire, and that they're photographers who hook up with them. Did you learn this because he went and did a lot of research about how do I get entree into the world of mall Santas and he shared it with you around the dinner table when you went home to visit? I mean, was this his research for his new career? So he came by this career through his brother who has been beard. doing this he for years. He came by this career through his beard. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. He did. And he was spotted. No. Um, in so, the mall. But in the mall. Right. Um, and they said, would you sit, please? Someone didn't show um, up. They just slapped a hat on him and said, you're Santa. <laughs> Suit fits. Let's wear it. So he, he did, you know, this was like sort of information that was parceled out as he got more and more into the Santa gig over the year. I mean, you sign up in like the spring to work as Santa in the fall and winter. And so over that period of time, he was learning more. And it was sort of like, you know, revelation after revelation about the depth of the Mall Santa Industrial Complex. And it's, I mean, we don't, we just don't have the equivalent. We just don't, don't have the equivalent in <laughs> Judaism. Okay, so, so hold on. So let's bring some order to this Christmassy chaos. Um, so real beard Santas trump fake beard Santas. <laughs> Always. Are they not like, would the twain never should meet? Or if I'm a real beard Santa and I see a guy with like a shabby, like clearly fake beard, and I'm like, man, you're you're a disgrace to mall Santahood. How I get the feeling, yeah, that that uh, interaction like the sharks and the jets, basically. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a real rivalry. In fact, the order of real bearded Santas, you know, has a statement about real beards. And the organization my dad worked for had a policy, no fake bearded Santas. This organization, by the way, is in 800 locations in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere. I wonder what the test was for that. I mean, when you show up and you- They, mean, there, t- the some, tug, they just do I a mean, little- They have an elf who basically gets up on a stool and grabs your beard and jumps. And if he can't hang from it, if the beard comes off in his hands, you are not admitted to the fraternal order of real bearded Santas. I have one final question, and I want to say thank you for joining us and to, to edu- for educating us on this, on this world, for fellowshipping with us um, about mall Santahood. What are you doing for Christmas this year? <laughs> 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 well, in truth, I will be at my in-laws' house for Christmas this year, being, you know, the Jew on Christmas who's missing, hanging out at the Chinese restaurant with all the other Jews, but very happily sharing in the wassailing and tree trimming with my, with my extended family. They do wassail well. And does your father-in-law dress up as like Judah Maccabee for Hanukkah? Is that like a counter He would offer? be an amazing Judah Maccabee. That's on the list for this year. Thank you, Leo. And why did he only do it for one year? He was such a natural. He was a natural. You know what? COVID cut it short. It cut his career short. It was the year before COVID. And, and all the, through the country. That's right. Not a Santa was mauling, you know, across the entire country that next year. And the following year, it was like, it's going to happen, but you're going to maybe be behind plexiglass. And my dad said, that's where I, no. that's right. No said, I'm not a bank Santa. teller anymore. Right. <laughs> I'm done with that life. Uh, Jetty Lee, uh, thank you so much for bringing us Jews into your Jewish world of real bearded mall Santahood. We wish you a, uh, a merry yontif and a, a good 5783. <laughs> Thank you so much and Christmas Sameach to all of you. <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>
A few weeks back, we had an interview with Faith Saley, the writer and comedian, contributor to CBS Sunday Morning, the panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And she talked about being a Gentile mother to two Jewish children. People loved this interview, and we loved this interview. So we had her back to talk about interfaith parenting, especially during the holiday season. It was another superb conversation with Gentile Faith Saley. Before I officially welcome you back to Unorthodox, I want to say that you are probably like the quickest turnaround from first appearance to second appearance. Usually like on SNL, you have to at least wait a season. But people were so moved by everything you shared with us last time. We got so many letters and so many interesting conversations. So we were like, we got to get Faith back and let's get her back for Christmas. So welcome to Christmas on Unorthodox. So you're saying, Stephanie, this is the second coming of Faith Saley. (laughs) (laughs) I am... I am so, you can never have enough faith, right? I am so honored. Um, Liel, isn't your title at Tablet something at large? I can't ever remember it. It's exactly right. Something at large. Yeah. That's how I'm referring <laughs> so to it. So my right. goal, y'all, my goal is to be invited back so often that I am just Gentile at large. <laughs> I love that. We can do that. That's the thing about running our own show is before this podcast is over, we could have you on the masthead as Gentile at large. I love it. I, I want with that very much. all the rights much. and responsibilities that come with being Gentile at large. The acronym is GAL. I'm your GAL. Yep. <gasps> um, here's, here's the thing. Y- y'all know how nerdy I am and how much I prepare. So in preparation for coming today, I listened to your Christmassy podcast from 2019, 2020, and 2021. And I learned <laughs> that if I say happy holidays to you, Liel will freak out. And I always (laughs) say happy holidays to people. I'll be very offended by that. But what am I supposed to say to you? Because I also learned from Stephanie that you don't say happy Hanukkah until it's Hanukkah. Whereas we Gentiles say Merry Christmas all Advent long. Faith, these guys are a tough crowd. I know. You say Merry Christmas, the baby Jesus unto us has been born a king in Bethlehem. Whatever you want, just keep it as Jesus-y as you could possibly get, and I would be thrilled. You know what it is? It's that both of these guys, Faith, grew up surrounded by other Jews, and they're still making their way into how to deal with this Gentile stuff. I was slapped across the face with so many Merry Christmases, Happy Holidays, Christ is Risen, Christ is Born, growing up among the Irish, that my skin is tougher than theirs with with holidays. Say say, say something like, you know, on the name of Melchior, Balthazar, and Gaspar, whatever his name was, I wish you, et cetera. Were those the three wise men? Those are the three wise men, yeah. With a deep New Testament cut from Liel Leibowitz. Faith, welcome to the real experience of the show where you, a professional talker, will barely get a few words in. Um, yep. So let's- it's, it's okay, I'm so, I'm so ready. Um, so, but I have to tell you, so Liel, after listening to you get upset that people say happy holidays, mm. I'm getting out of the taxi with my daughter who's eight the other day and I decide to try it on. I always say happy holidays because it's New York and you do not know what your taxi driver celebrates. So I said to him, Merry Christmas. Thank you for the ride. And we get out and my daughter says, Mommy, how do you know he celebrates Christmas? And I was like, you're exactly right, Minerva. That is my daughter's name. And so, Leo, this isn't going to work in New York City. You mean that's that's why my rabbi looked at me funny on Shabbos when I said, Merry Christmas, Rob. So, Faith, when you first came on the show, you showed up in like an ironic Christmas sweater with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's face on it. Now, I do feel like you're either elegantly trolling us or not. You're wearing a red sweater 
you're holding a Hanukkah mug. Because this is how we roll. In your family. This is how we roll in my family. In my new iteration, right? I became a parent at 41 and 43, respectively. And my husband and I, over the past 10 years, have figured out in real time what it means to celebrate these holidays as a Judeo-Christian family that has decided to raise our kids Jewish, whatever that means. My husband, John, as unorthodox audiences already know, John with an H, but still Jewish. The H is for Hebrew. <laughs> I'll have to tell him that. He, all right, he and I are, are, are continuing to figure this out, and I love it. But Stephanie, you asked what it looks like. I'm going to give you the literal picture. If you walk into our apartment— you know, smallish two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you see a pretty giant Christmas tree absolutely laden with ornaments. We have too many ornaments to fit on the tree. Included among those ornaments are several menorah ornaments and a Star of David made out of glittery popsicle sticks that one of my kids made in their conservative Jewish nursery school. And then beside it are not one not two, but three different types of menorahs. And then my Aunt Judy, who lives in Boston and is super Catholic and swears by saying things like sweet redeema. <laughs> she loves to support the Judaism in our family. So she sends big chunky signs that are painted on. So we have one that says love and light and the O is a star of David. And then we have one that is like a stencil of a menorah. So that's that's our home. That's what it looks like. Plus, we have like each kid gets three different advent calendars because we can't decide between Lego advent calendars and chocolate advent calendars. I cannot believe that I missed out on advent calendars. Like I literally didn't know they existed. <sighs> and you get a present, a tiny gift every day, and they make them for adults every too. Every day. I'm gonna out myself as somebody who actually got a doctorate in this stuff and doesn't really know. You got a doctorate in Advent in, in Christmas. Remind me what Advent <laughs> is. I didn't know Advent calendars existed until 23 seconds ago. What? So could you Christ explain to us, please? School us, Faith. Wait, I'm so excited because I feel like you all know everything about all the religions. So Advent. Advent is a beautiful idea, right? The advent of something is the coming of something. And I've been thinking a lot in preparation for talking with you all about the difference in feelings between Christmas and Hanukkah. And I think perhaps the sine qua non of Christmas is the anticipation, right? Advent is the 24 days leading up to Christmas. It's kind of the more joyful equivalent of Lent, right? Which is the 40 days before Easter. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the idea of Advent is that we are in winter. It is darkness. There is darkness before the light. That sounds familiar to Hanukkah celebrators, right? But what Advent really means nowadays is going on Amazon, typing in Advent calendars, and they have every kind you can imagine. My son has a magic trick a day Advent calendar, a gemstone a day National Geographic Advent calendar, and then a Cadbury's Advent calendar. My daughter has Hatchimals, so, Lego figures. And what, what do you mm -hmm. what do you I would do tell you that the, the one moments in my life you, you count them, Mark. They're they're a little like little. It's the Omer. Well, why am I? It's the Omer. But with gifts, oh. you're counting down till the gifts. You're yeah. They have little tiny gifts, I guess, to keep you oh. to, to keep kids calm, um, like like chill pills <laughs> until Christmas, so that the they don't open the presents under the tree. I will tell you that the one. That the one time in my life where I felt like very strong pangs of regret that I was not indeed a good Christian boy was when I discovered that there was indeed an advent calendar 
that basically tracked Hans Gruber's fall of Nakatomi Tower. He starts falling on the 24th day. And on Christmas, he uh, hits the ground. Which this is in me, Die Hard. Uh, this is the, the, a celebration of Die Hard, the greatest Christmas movie ever made, written, of course, by a Jewish <laughs> gentleman. Uh, but this is when I said, you know what? I, I, want, I want in on this one. But, okay, Faith, I want to talk about these. And it's it's like this consumerist version of what started as like a deeply Christian thing, right? But there now it's- There must be right. some anti-materialist pushback. Based on my deep scholarship <laughs> on this, no. which has been the last two minutes of learning, this doesn't sound highly spiritual to me. Which, of course, is mostly what Christmas has become in every way, right? Is not highly spiritual and completely capitalistic. And Hanukkah, too. Has Hanukkah become the same? Well, I think this idea of like eight nights of presents, that's what Hanukkah is. I think a lot of kids know it as mm-hmm. that. And it's so funny to hear about Advent of like, wait, I could get 24 days of tiny presents. And like, <laughs> you you hear the Christian kids being like, but you get eight nights. Like, as is this idea of like people being, there's like Hanukkah envy is, I feel like, a thing that maybe exists. But actually... The Christians perfected it with a full a full month of, of little gifties. When I was a kid, there were not advent calendars like this. Like the advent calendar we had was something my mom made probably in 1977 out of felt, right? And you lifted up the flaps and you were like, oh, today's, it's the 16th. It's reindeer day. This is part of the Amazon world we live in, I think. Faith, I have to ask you a question because I've had uh, a religious experience, a great awakening, if you will, this Sunday. I took my nine-year-old boy to see one of my absolute favorite shows, the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, uh, which oh, is it incredible. Is spectacular. And let me tell you what I saw, and then I want you to explain it to me because it was very, very confusing. So it begins, and there's Santa. There's like a little 3D movie. There's jingle bells, deck the halls. Everything's great. Everything's happy, right? Yeah. Then there's like a whole number. There's some nutcracker with bears and tutus doing ballet. Very cute. Then there's some March of the Wooden Soldiers. Fantastic. There is a whole segment about Christmas in New York City, which of course was just an opportunity to feature all the stores and commercial sponsors of this thing. Delta. Yep. Presents, 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 Santa, you know, North Pole, elves, workshop, toys, everything is great. And then it kind of devolves into like- I know where you're headed. A complete pagan thing. There's like, oh, guys, let's meet the snow fairies because they are the ones who give us (laughs) snow. And they're literally snow fairy drones flying around in Radio City. Yeah, like little snow fairy drones. Like the snow fairies give us snow. And I'm like, oh my God, this is wonderful. And then kind of like, you know, record squeech, everything comes to a halt. And unto us was born the King Jesus Christ. And they bring out the camels and the sheep and the baby Jesus. And I'm like, if I'm a little Christian boy and I'm sitting here, it's like, okay, so this holiday is about the nice man who gives me 15% off at Saks and the toys and Jesus? Explain. Discuss. Okay. So I love that you brought this up because I am always so moved I love the Christmas spectacular. It is literally spectacular. And then when it gets to this life-size nativity scene at the end, and you're not lying, it's a real camel that walks across the stage. Mm. It's a mm-hmm. there is an ass, there is a, a donkey, an ass up. And um, <clears throat> and it is the tableau that they create. I find it unbelievably moving. Like I put my husband was holding my hand. And I actually took away my hand and put it over my heart. And the music swells and Christmas music, like religious Christmas music to me 
is still so moving, even though I haven't gone to Christmas mass since 2018 with my father. Are you kidding? It, it's incredibly moving to me. When I go to a Christian thing and they're doing not carols, but sort of seasonal stuff, I, I think, please, would you bring out the real carols? Because they're so yes. good. They're, God, they're they're absolutely gorgeous. And they're singing, oh, come all yes. you faithful. And, oh my God. And, um, and so I have to tell you, my experience is very interesting. Um, <laughs> that's, that's how I, that, like it is a remembrance of how I once felt incredibly connected to my Catholicism, that moment. And when we went to go see it, it was uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I'm there with my family. And the a performer on stage is quoting the chapter of Luke from the Bible. And she says, you know, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And some dude in the audience goes, Woo! And the whole audience bursts into applause. <laughs> and I've been going to the Radio City Christmas Spectacular for about eight years, and that has never happened. And this year, for the first time, I wondered if it felt a little sinister. Like, I had all these thoughts that happened all at once. One was, how do my Jewish children feel about hearing that whoop? Like, do they feel excluded? Do they get it? Is it okay? And in a time where anti-Semitism is just rampant and we hear the words from some of our worst politicians about like, what's it called, Christo-nationalism? There was a little touch of that whooping that felt sinister. And maybe that's because the last few shows I'd seen before the Christmas Spectacular were um, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, Leopold Scott. I'm going to see which, it in Leopold is, Scott. I'm seeing right. that too. Yeah, great. I got tickets for both. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's the Tom Stoppard film about, uh, you know, a, a Jewish Viennese family that lives through the Holocaust or doesn't live through it. And then I had also seen Parade, which of course is about the murder Leo of Frank. Leo Frank right. uh-huh, in Georgia in 1915. So later I asked my family, how did you feel when you heard that whooping? And my husband said, you know, I just thought it was some Joey bag of donuts being a class clown. And, and then the audience <laughs> joined in because then you see the tableau and it's so spectacular. And he said, that didn't disturb me. He said, and this all happened around the same time. He said, what disturbs me is when people are laughing at Dave Chappelle on SNL. Like, I find that disturbing. And my, my son, I said, what did you think when that man whooped? And he said, well, I could just tell he was from Texas and he has guns and he wears a shirt that says it's five o'clock somewhere. Like my son made up a whole <laughs> character analysis. But, and his name but, is Abraham Goldstein. <laughs> and he was going, Jesus, one of us. I have a two-parter for you. And and it's getting a little bit serious, but I feel like you just got a little bit serious. I feel like you harshed our mellow a little bit and now I'm going to harsh it even further. Sorry, y'all. You covered some of this last time you were on the show. Tell me, how Christian are you? Like, what do you believe? Mm. That's, that's such a good question. I am, I am Christian enough that I identify as Christian and like demarcate that I am Christian and my children are not. That I am raising Jewish children and I am not only not Jewish, I'm not like, oh, I don't know what I am. I'm Christian. I have vestigial feelings about Christ being the son of God. And I am, I am not sure, like when, when Easter rolls around and I have to remind my children what Christians are actually celebrating besides Easter bunnies and because mm-hmm. we do Easter baskets and jelly beans. I 
always find myself in the position of wondering how much I believe. So it's very complicated because it's inextricable with my very happy memories of being raised very, very Catholic by a wonderful mother. So I, I don't have a good answer for you, but I like stumbling through it. Dare I say it's very Talmudic of me? I was about to say, not being able to actually say exactly what you believe is like the most Jewish thing you could right. absolutely do. So I think it's a great answer, but here's here's my part two of the two-part question, right? And I'm on record. I've I've debated this. I actually debated this with another Jew once uh, in, in Slate Magazine. We had a whole dialogue back and forth about Christmas trees in Jewish homes. And they make me really, really, really uncomfortable. Not because I think the Christians are coming for me to send me to, you know, Leopoldstadt, to send me into a Tom Stoppard play necessarily. But because one of the things about being Jewish, aside from the theology, right, which I understand a lot of Jews don't believe, right? Not a lot of Jews believe. There are, there are Jews who don't believe Torah is, you know, the word of God as given to Moses at, at Sinai, right? Just as I'm not going to like interrogate your Christianity because you are have confusion or uncertainty or ambivalence about the resurrection, right? Like that's for you to decide, right? But one of the things that being Jewish in America is, in a secular society, in the diaspora, is a sense of difference. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say a sense of deprivation. It's not like, oh, we don't get the Christmas tree. I never felt we don't get the Christmas tree. I just felt growing up like we don't have it because mm -hmm. we're Jews. And one mm -hmm. of the things we are is a very small minority people who through time have had to live in majority lands where they had lots of stuff that we didn't have. And in my family, we did have bacon and ham and whatever, but for some Jewish families, it's, we don't have that. And I guess I wonder, like, I just want to put out there that it seems to me that families that have the cultural trappings of Christianity, I look at them and I say, but you're not raising Jewish children because so much yeah. of it, and I imagine so much of your husband's Judaism is in fact cultural. And so to be raised in a home that's functionally doing all this Christian stuff is way less Jewish than, you know what I'm saying. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, does it, does it not seem to you that way? I totally agree with you. And when you first started out, you framed this by saying Christmas trees in a Jewish home. So if I had said to my husband, yes, I will marry you, I will raise kids Jewish, and I will convert to Judaism, that to me would have been giving up all the trappings of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I will admit this freely. It is very easy for us, my husband included, to, we call it honoring mom's traditions. It's so easy for us. This is, I readily admit that. We have, there, there is a world in which it's like, how can you say you're raising Jewish children if you're celebrating all the traditions of Christmas? Um, and I take that point. However, at Easter time, we say we're honoring mom's traditions. At Christmas time, we say we're honoring mom's traditions. And my children do not believe the, they, they don't, we don't honor the religious part of Christmas. We do not have a nativity in our home. When I was growing up, we had a beautiful Hummel nativity. My job every year was to arrange it. I loved arranging our Hummel nativity. It's probably worth a lot of money. My father's offered it to me. I don't think it's appropriate in our home. I actually talked about this, again, in preparation for seeing you all with my husband yesterday. And I said, do you ever have any conflict in your heart or soul about the fact that we have taken our kids to see Santa? Our kids, our kids believe in Santa. I'm not, my, my son is 10 and a half. I'm not sure where he stands. But My kids have, believe in the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy and the Loch Ness Monster. What? I'm not against any of that. But then you're talking about Advent calendars, which is pretty spiritually Christian. That's not like American cultural trappings. Maybe in Georgia it is, but I'd never heard of one. And I, you know, again, grew up in Christian land. But that's like, that's pretty deep in the church life. I would disagree. Yeah, so, so would I. 
a thousand percent disagree. I think you're giving us giving me way too much credit. Our advent calendars are purely purely yeah, materialistic. They're purely Amazon materialistic. Yeah. All right. Well, I um, I won't belabor this. I will just say I think the Christmas tree should be moved into your bedroom and put on your side of the bed, <laughs> along with your pile of books. <laughs> And then it's like, look, it's mom's makeup. It's her pile of books. It's, it's her, her Kindle. Tree. And it's her little Christmas tree. That's fair. Faith, I have I have a story to tell that that I don't know that I ever told you, but it's, I think, one of the most delightful stories. It's, it's a story about one of the great modern American Orthodox rabbis uh, who, as a boy, was sent to public school. And it's December, and the public school is putting on a Christmas play, complete with a nativity scene. And this little, very clearly, visibly orthodox boy is cast in the play. The next day, the teacher gets a call from his mother. The teacher like hears the mother's voice and immediately starts saying, I am so sorry. It was culturally insensitive of me to cast him in this play. I understand, is it? And the mother's like, no, 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 no. That's not at all why I'm calling. It's just the reason I'm calling, like you cast him as one of the sheep. And I just want to know what, like he wasn't good enough to be the baby Jesus, uh, <laughs> which is which is a little bit funny. But I think at the same time, kind of like a testament to when you're raising kids in a very secure notion of who they are, in my opinion, and, and I'm very curious to hear yours, having even in the same home, a different tradition to contend with isn't diluting their faith in a weird way. It's kind of strengthening their faith because it's actually asking them every day to ask themselves what it is that I actually truly believe. It's it's a really good, yes. I think, rooting to the fact that, yes, well, I'm Jewish and I live in this country, which is a predominantly Christian country. And there are a lot of people, these traditions, including people in my family who I love dearly, and it means a lot to them. And I can Liel. respect that, but also, you know. Can I Jewishly interrupt you now? Can I cooperatively overlap? I think that's overlap. <laughs> I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. If the Judaism is coming on, you know, really confident. And, you know, I, I'm not, again, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to put Faith and John on the, but when I've seen this no, a lot, no, Mark, it's often I, like. I will confirm the Judaism is not coming on enough because I asked both of my children yesterday do you remember the story of Hanukkah? Which, by the way, they could recite beautifully when they were three and four going to this conservative nursery school and they acted sure. out the Maccabees and everything. Yesterday, my 10-year-old son said, isn't that when they escaped slavery and invented challah? Yes. Yes, it is. He was. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there were That's the best so mashup I've ever. That's, that's like a South Park <laughs> episode right there. That's a it brilliant. Is so, and my husband said to me yesterday, as we were walking towards Times Square discussing this, he said to me, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what traditions we offer them. They are going to choose to identify how they identify. And I said, I don't think, because because we, we offer them, you know, the Christian traditions and the Jewish traditions, and we do Shabbat and we light the candles and we celebrate Christmas. And I said, but wait a minute. You wanted to raise them Jewish, and you tell me that maintaining your Jewish identity is part of honoring history and tradition, like religion aside. So no, that's not what I signed up for. I do think that they need to identify as Jewish. Like that's that's fundamentally a part of this. So I, <laughs> You're like, right? Wait. I mean, I was like, isn't this what I signed up for? You know, I think the interesting thing about all of this faith and the thing that I actually am moved by with, with interfaith families, whatever that means, I mean, 
this idea like you come home from Radio City Music Hall and you're saying like, what did we just see and how did it make us feel? You guys are having these conversations. And yes, you might not have this like Jewish undergirding that they know. Like, I actually don't know that it's so super important for them to know exactly the story of Hanukkah, which like isn't super important in At the- At some point it is. Yeah, well, they should. I but, mean- but I think that like these conversations <laughs> are actually so much more foundational to their identity, which is like even this idea of honoring mom's traditions, because even just that phrasing of it, like- It sounds like, I mean, from our previous conversation on the show and other conversations we've had is like so much of your faith background is like connected to your mother, right? And connected to your family. And and it's not about institutional Catholicism in any way, but it's actually connects you to your family. And I think that this idea of like honoring mom's traditions is like incredibly beautiful. And I, I don't know, I think that this idea that you're just having these conversations and like you could look up the story of Hanukkah and they will find out, right? They'll know it tonight, right? Wait, but it's not the case that well, just because we all have smartphones, we don't have to know stuff anymore. Like that's a really, no, that's no. really kind I'm of not selling saying out that. I'm not saying what that. it is to know a tradition is like, of course we can Hold look on. stuff up, but- I yes. agree, but we, but that was like a wake up call for me and my husband. Like we did think, first of all, thank you, Stephanie. That's in- incredibly generously and beautifully put. And- And even the conversations I've had preparing to talk to you all today have made me realize, like, I cannot rely on what they learned as three and four-year-olds. We have to talk to them about whether they're going to be bar and bat mitzvahed now. Like, like they need to know this stuff now. And we did look up the story of the Maccabees and we did talk about it. And when we left Fiddler on the Roof, I had never seen it. I'm 51 years old and had never seen it. I thought it was like a fun school play. It's devastating at the it's end. It's dark. We, uh, it, we were uh, we were crying, but also kind and of my a fun kids were very play. sober and a fun school play. But my children showed a marked level of respect the next time we did Shabbat because for a long time they've kind of goofed around when we would l- do the Shabbat, like lighting the candles and saying the prayers. And when we left Fiddler on the Roof, John said to them. Do you see what I mean about why we uphold this tradition? Do you understand that our people have been chased away from their homes since the beginning of time and why I care so much? And when I did ask the children, because Minerva asked me recently, she's eight. She said, Mommy, which do you like better, Christmas or Hanukkah? And I told her that I had more emotional attachment to Christmas because that's what I grew up with, but that I loved rolling in Hanukkah now. And then I asked the children and they can't, they conflate them. It's all one fun holiday month for them. But both of them said, because I'm Jewish, I really love the message of Hanukkah, that it's a miracle. And that, however they said it in their own words, that we triumphed and we survived, which is much deeper than the cheery jolliness of Christmas. So give us the scene Christmas morning in your household. Like, what are we waking up to? Give us like, I want, oh, I, you know, John kind of lucked out because John gets, okay. So so we always go visit my dad. My dad, so my children will never listen to this podcast. So my dad is a fireplace, thank God, because we don't in our apartment. We're in Florida. So the night before we put out the cookies for Santa and the uh, and you always put out a carrot for Rudolph, we put out the Turvis tumbler that has a Star of David on it. And we put milk in I'm that. I'm sorry, not for, for the other reindeer? Yeah, well, we like, never fuck really Blitzen? think about I, what, that's, well, that's kind it's of- It's making up for all the bullying so that Rudolph received. <laughs> so, so then we eat some of the cookies and we scatter the crumbs and then we have to eat some of the carrot. And then my father takes a boot and he puts it in the fireplace and gets the ashes. And then he puts like boot ash print on the ground outside the fireplace as proof that Santa was there. And then- 
we have different wrapping paper for the presents from mom and dad and their grandfather and his significant other. And then Santa has his own wrapping paper. So there's no confusion. I think I understand that your producer Quinn's mother used to sign for Santa with her with her non-dominant hand. We haven't perfected that. <laughs> oh, and then there are stockings that we fill. Um, and so that's what we go to bed to. And then the children wake up to that. And we ask them to only open a few presents until we wake up. And then we all watch the kids open presents and leave wrapping paper everywhere. That's beautiful. Mic drop. Yeah, that's yeah. that's amazing. Faith, will you continue? Will you, as our Gentile at large, like, will you come back and tell us more about these conversations as they develop in your family and like as other holidays come up? When we, I would be honored that holiday when we invented holla. You'll come back. <laughs> yes, yes, we have to talk about that. Um, I will also add that on on Christmas night, my father always orders Chinese food, and I know it's really nice. And when he says the prayer, so I grew up with a prayer before every meal. Bless us, O Lord, with these our gifts, which we are about to receive through the bounty of Christ our Lord. Amen. And my father never calls attention to it, but he changes it and says, through the bounty of our maker, our Lord. Amen. And so that's Can I just say what's so funny about that is that maker is such a goyish word. Like if he said creator, that would have been a little more Jewish, but never heard a Jew say maker. But- but Mocker. How about mocker? (laughs) Mocker would do it- it's like there's a way to do it, but ma- but but maker. No, I appreciate like, oh. this. This is amazing. I think it's like these tiny moments. This is exactly what it is, right? These tiny moments you talk about that like actually are the, the tapestry of a rich and respectful tradition. At the end of the day, when John and I sit on our sofa in the dark and we look at our tree, he said to me, that's our family. That's all of it. Those ornaments are where our children were at different times in their lives, where we've gone, right by a menorah. That's it. The whole... I'm about to use a word wrong. Mishpaka, that means family, right? The whole Mishigas, all of it. What's the Yiddish word for just all of it messed up together? I love it. And the whole Megillah, right? It's amazing. The whole Megillah. All of it. So Faith, allow me to to wish you a Merry Christmas. Thank you. And may I say (laughs) Happy Hanukkah? Yes. You may. (laughs) And a Freilicha Advent to you. May it be the most joyous, free, happy Advent season. And you can help us with the unorthodox Advent calendar for next year, for 5784. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, yes. There'll be hamantashen cookies or something in it. I love that. Faith Silly, thank you for being a guest again on Unorthodox. And we're so excited to have you as our Gentile at large. I'm so grateful. And Mark, keep pushing back. Keep pushing back. These are important questions. I'm ready for them. I honestly don't know how not to. But thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. No, it's really great talking thank you, with you. Y'all. Hey, Liel, happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays and a very, merry, non-distinct, uh, you know, winter solstice season to you too. Time for some pod biz. Unpacking the Book, the series I host with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum is starting back up this month. On March 28th, I will be at the Jewish Museum in conversation with authors Jordan Salama and Elizabeth Graver about Mizrahi and Sephardic diaspora journeys. Then in April, also at the Jewish Museum, I'll be talking with Rabbi Diana Fursco and author Maurice Samuels about what their new books tell us about the continued rise of anti-Semitism from Dreyfus to today. In May, we're heading to Zoom for a virtual conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about their new books. You can find all of that info and more at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. Our second Beautifully Jewish Craft Along is underway. 
To join our growing community, head to tabletm.ag beautiful. I also wanted to share this delightful review on Apple Podcasts. For this non-American goy, Unorthodox is a weekly compulsion. Three very different characters deliver no-holds-barred perspectives from the Jewish part of people's identities. Well, in Liel's case, Jewish slash American slash Israeli slash his own universe. All are welcome and all can contribute. Why only four stars? Sometimes I can't keep up with the spoken delivery speeds, a problem when you've become a global phenomenon, as you have. Well, non-American goy, we love you even if we talk too fast for you. The rest of you, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And you know Joshua Molina will be reading it, so make it a good one. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. To the mailbox, so much mail on so many things, including Liel's attack on the good-natured, well-meaning, well-intentioned holiday greeting, Happy Holidays. This from Rena in Toronto. Dear Unorthodox, as to the idea that we should say happy holidays, because clearly this is the most important time of year for everyone, well, it's not. I don't feel festive, nor do I feel like Hanukkah is a holiday season, because it's not. We Jews have a whole month of feeling festive and spending time with family. It's called Tishrei. Yours, Rena Altman, Toronto. That's right. In Tishrei, I'll wish you happy holidays. How about that? She's coming strong. We also got this. Dear Unorthodox, as to Liel's controversial comment that happy holidays is lame or goyish, whatever. The whole season is lame. If anything, happy holidays is a time saver. What are you going to say? Happy New Year, Kwanzaa too? Just abbreviate to happy holidays. I love you guys and wish you all a very happy holiday, David Satin. P.S. And a happy holiday to you too, David. Liel and Stephanie, this is the great part, is the P.S. here. So having sort of chided us, he then gets to P.S., the last time I heard the word goyish, I was at my Chabad rabbi's house during the high holidays. One of his kids was playing with the other kids and talking about Spider-Man. I asked him if he knew Spider-Man was created by Jews. He was very surprised by this and replied, but my parents say Spider-Man is so goyish. Ah. Leo Leibowitz, you were in fact a scholar of this very question. Is that a fair thing to say? I would say only in a super Jewish house is a scrawny kid from Queens who wishes he had power so he can get the girl. Uh, considered goyish. This Chabad rabbi needs a little bit of Liel's book on Stan Lee in his life. So Liel put his foot in it with the happy holidays. I was going after the the sweet 16s, just American traditions falling by the wayside left and right. Stephanie, would you read the letters that we got about the question of whether Jewish girls have sweet 16 parties? Yes, this Jewish girl will read them. Hello, my unorthodox friends. I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia, where all of my Jewish friends had sweet 16 parties just for girls. And thinking about it, I only had one friend who had a bat mitzvah. So I'm thinking that for Jewish girls, this was their party. My daughters did not have a sweet 16, but they did have a bat mitzvah. So maybe that's the transition. So I say, yes, it is Jewish to have a sweet 16, depending on when you were born. That's from Anne, our Elkins Park friend. So Stephanie, I, I have to ask a question here. Yeah. So I actually never, I, I think something just dawned on me just right now as I was hearing Anne's letter that sweet 16 parties are only for girls. Yes. So men do not deserve a sweetened 16th year. We no. eat bacon. Our, our 16th is sour or bitter. What, what's yeah, going it's, on? It's a cake Explain. with a 16 in bacon spelled out on top. We have we have shark 16 parties. But I think, I think this is fascinating 16. because basically, Mark, Mark, when did girls start having bat mitzvahs across America? Well, it didn't really, it, it spread 
from the 50s on, right? I mean, of course, the first was before the war, but you, it is very, especially in conservative synagogues, if they were more on the orthodox end, there were conservatives that weren't doing Saturday bat mitzvahs for girls until the 80s or 90s. So yeah, no, absolutely. It was a boys thing in lots and lots of communities and not just orthodox communities throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Totally. It's it just it's just an interesting it's an interesting layer. How about this? Another Philly letter. This is from Judith. I was born in 1946 and grew up in Philadelphia. Sweet 16s were most definitely a Jewish phenomenon. They were glitzy and expensive, and many were held in Palumbo's, a nightclub that sometimes attracted well-known celebrities. We feasted on huge non-kosher meals. My friends and I were working class kids, and their Sweet 16s were a big expenditure for their parents. I was the only one in my crowd who didn't have a Sweet 16, and it wasn't because we were Jewish. In those days, it was rare for girls to have a bat mitzvah, so it's interesting to speculate whether Sweet 16s would have taken place if that was the case. So interesting. And Palumbo's. I want to know more about yes. the swanky trafe nightclub Palumbo's, where the Jewish girls of Philly had their sweet 16. That's the next letter that I want uh, from the J. Crew. Liel, would you dive deeper into the mailbox for us and see what else is good this week? I will dive so deep and come up not with a letter, but with a number. Ready for this? Tell me what this number represents. 5,900. And 24. That's how many pieces of bacon the men's ministry consumed in one year. (laughs) Mark, any guesses? Uh, The actual years since creation. They went back and retabulated. It's not year 5783. It's year 5924. (laughs) They were off by a mere 200. That, my friend, is the number of minutes. Super listener Daniel Alter listened to Unorthodox this year. Get this. This Toronto Jew, he writes, spent way too much time listening to your podcast, the equivalent of over four uninterrupted days. Maybe I should spend more time going to Shul. Daniel, this is Shul. This is your place of Jewish communion. This is where you fellowship with other Jews and non-Jews alike. Daniel Alter, you say to us, keep up the good work, but we say to you, keep up the good work yourself and listen to us and we love you. This is amazing. This is probably the best Spotify end of year roundup that I've seen is the person who who listens to us so much. So Daniel Alter, who wrote to us attaching a screenshot from the popular podcast and music listening app Spotify to indicate that he had indeed spent 5,924 minutes listening to Unorthodox this year. It's a life well spent. Honestly, it's a life well spent. Uh, I always like a letter that begins in Yiddish. Uh, a listener writes to us, Was machst du mein Mishpucha? You know, what's going on, my people? As I imagine so many do Thursday mornings, I walked out my front door listening to your latest creative podcast offering. Just as the discussion around holiday greetings began, I noticed my bus off in the distance approaching. On the bike rack, there were festive decorations. Entering the bus, the details came to me piecemeal. The Connect card terminal was draped like candy cane. Charlie Brown was everywhere. Has Charlie Brown become the spokesperson for neutral holiday tidings? There was green and red tinsel swinging from the ceiling. Sincerely, it felt odd and outlandish. But come to find out, the Pittsburgh Regional Transit adorns one bus like this every year. And the situation has brought me abject horror. Zegazunt, Jeremy Yermayahu Ben Lotzker, Northup. So I like that once again, we are functioning, as we did a couple of weeks ago, as the fetch line for Jews who just have something to <laughs> complain about. But Jeremy sees that there's this Pittsburgh public bus adorned for the holidays. And but by the horrified. way, only one. It's, it's like the Rudolph of buses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, in fact, is 
this is what's delivering the holiday presents. It's it's a Pittsburgh regional transit bus that <laughs> Santa has commandeered. It's like speed. But I actually was intrigued by something buried in the middle of this letter, which is he rightly asked, why is Charlie Brown there? Is Charlie Brown now like the neutral? Is it Hanukkah Harry meets Santa Claus? Is there something about the Charlie Brown Christmas special that's made him the bearer of neutral ecumenical holiday tidings? That is weird. And I, 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 I appeal to the J. Crew for thoughts on this. To the voicemails. Stephanie, this one is clearly for you. You know, I like to think of this podcast as a connector, uh, a connector of people. Um, and it turns out that that extends beyond us, but to our, our doctors. So here is a great voicemail about the famous Dr. Prasad, who fixed my sinuses. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Monica from Boston, although right now I'm actually calling from JFK Airport, flying back from a weekend trip. And I wanted to share a funny story. So I was in New York for the weekend staying with relatives of a friend, and I, I had never met these relatives before. And there was a conversation going on that I was not part of um, about medical providers. And someone mentioned Dr. Prasad, and I caught in, and I was like, Dr. Prasad, I know who that is. And they were like, how? You don't, you don't live here. And I was like, well, I listened to this weekly Jewish podcast on Orthodox, and they've talked about Dr. Prasad, and I, I hear he's really great. And they were like, weekly Jewish podcast, Dr. Prasad is Indian. Um, and then I had to explain the whole story. Uh, and I just wanted to share that with you, and I hope you're all doing well. Bye. The famous ear, nose, and throat wizard. Dr. Prasad. Incredible. And now to the best voicemail of the week. You know, we don't like picking favorites, but this is kind of my favorite. Hi, this is an anonymous caller from a small, mid-sized, midwestern city with a note about holiday displays. In the last week or so, we've noticed at least four or five houses in our neighborhood sporting inflatable menorahs and Hanukkah llamas on their lawns. Until now, we've been fairly certain that we are among the only Jews in the neighborhood. We since hypothesized an inverse relationship between inflatable Hanukkah holiday displays and year-round Jewish observance. I'm wondering what you all think. Thanks so much for the show. Bye-bye. I love this. There are two questions here, right? First of all, there's the question that the that the listener called in about, right? The anonymous caller from the small Midwestern city. I love that she anonymized herself. <laughs> like, what is she afraid of? Who's going to come for her? And the first question is, is there an inverse relationship between how much you put on your front lawn and how much actual spirituality is going on in your home or, or observance in your home, which is an interesting question. For me, though, the more interesting thing was Hanukkah llamas. And then I Googled it, and that's a thing. They're big inflatable llamas that say Happy Lamaka on them. <laughs> Did you guys know about this? That's a I believe it's pronounced Yamaka. Oh my, that's so funny. You're on Google Images, aren't you? Hanukkah Lamaka. Oh. That's very strange. And she calls us and drops it as if everyone knows, right? There were Hanukkah llamas out there. You know, the Hanukkah llamas. Is this, this is a thing? How did I miss this? I don't think they've come to New Haven. Tell your llamaka to celebrate Hanukkah. So uh, Hanukkah llamas, I, I'm perplexed by. As to the other question though, Leon, what do you think? You know what? I'm sorry. I'm not buying. I Why can't the inside of your soul and the outside of your house uh, be identical? Why can't you just show the world how happy you are I mean, look, Hanukkah, the whole point of Hanukkah is Pirsume and Anissa, right? The whole idea is to advertise the miracle, which is why you're supposed to put the menorah on your windowsill so that everyone sees, hey, look, Hanukkah miracle. So I see you, the menorah and the windowsill, and I raise you six llamas, a Judah Maccabee, Frosty <laughs> wearing a Star of David bling. Like, bring it on, whatever. Like, it's kind of fun. No, but I yeah? love okay. this. Is that this wasn't, this caller thought they were the only Jew on the block, basically. 
And come yeah. season, like come holiday season or whatever we're calling this dreadful time of year. Char- it's Charlie Brown All of Brown a sudden, it's like, it's like a mezuzah on steroids, right? It's like, <laughs> I love this idea that it's like, it's like, you know, bageling. We've talked exactly. about this, right? Where you like try to figure out if someone's Jewish. They're self-bageling. Right. Anything that identifies you as Jewish and celebrates your Jewish pride, no matter how inflatable or tacky or <laughs> downright bizarre, is awesome. Well, you know. Awesome. As I was going through these letters, I turned to Sid and I said, should we get this stuff for our lawn? Like, why not? And especially, I think I felt an added degree of comfort because nobody's going to think we're just lawn ornament Jews, right? Like, if we do it, people know the Oppenheimer's. Like, he's, Mark's always at synagogue. Like, I'm kind of, you know, annoyingly out about, I mean, I host a Jewish podcast. People know that. So we could sort of reclaim the lawn ornaments as, as being for even Jews who are professional Jews. like No, it's I, true. I mean, our colleague Sarah Fredman-Eater has written about this for tablets. She has the inflatable Hanukkah stuff on her lawn. And she's like, like, I felt all these things about it. And now I've come to terms with it. I like, I love it. That's yeah, amazing. Right. Hey guys, J. Crew, could you send us your best lawn ornament pictures as well as your holiday letters, which of course, you know, I'm obsessed with. So I'd love screenshots of your letters, the letters you get, but also maybe some pictures of your Hanukkah llamas, your Hanukkah Harry's, your, you know, giant helium-filled mezuzahs floating above your house, whatever you've got, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, about you, but all you have to say to get me really excited are three little words. Very special episode, which usually, let's face it, means kind of a Christmassy themed special holiday cheer filled festive episode of your favorite TV show. But while I love these very special episodes very much, my good friend Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpern does not. A couple years ago, Stu wrote a piece for Tablet called Why I Won't Let My Kids Watch That Very Special Christmas Episode. So I called him up and asked him to read it for us. Have a listen. If modern Orthodox Judaism is supposed to be about reconciling Jewish tradition and the culture at large, I think I'm a pretty decent product of its community. I can recite Rambam, but also Role Models, a film that has earned little love from critics, let alone rabbis. I often confound students at Yeshiva University with a short sermon or six on Anchorman, 30 Rock, or whatever recent obsession my wife and I happen to pursue on Netflix. I've passed this Talmudic obsession with the minutia of our entertainment onto my children, who spend more time than I care to admit basking in bubble guppies, the octonauts, and myriad happy, shiny shows that give them as much pleasure as I get from laughing at, or is it with, Liz Lemon. There's only one exception to our devouring love of pop products. When their favorite shows present a Christmas episode, 
we insist that our children, as Liz would say, shut it down. I understand that this may strike some as absolutely bananas. Am I afraid that some cartoon reindeer will inspire my precious Jewish children to run to the nearest church and forgo our local shul? Do I believe for one moment that Will Ferrell's shiny green jacket and yellow pants and elf will influence my seven-year-old to rip off his tzitzit and dress instead like he was straight out of the North Pole? Or am I some kind of Grinch whose heart, being two sizes too small, begrudges billions of Christians worldwide the validity and profundity and beauty of their belief? The answer, thankfully, is none of the above. I don't let my kids watch Christmas shows for a much simpler reason. It's because I believe in diversity and I believe that differences matter and should be preserved and believe that the best way to reach something approaching a universal worldview is to root it in the very specific details of my own particular tradition. My tradition is Hanukkah, which I don't want my kids to confuse with any other holiday. In a culture dedicated to advocating openness, open minds, open hearts, open borders, this statement might strike you as, well, just a bit too closed off. Do we really need to be so jarring and so firm in our Jewish difference when the calendar offers an annual anchor in which such a wide swath of Americans who are so diverse in all matters, political, economic, and social, can put aside their distinctions and digital bloviating and find a sliver of communal commonality? After all, would it really be that hard to put up some red, layer on some white, pick up some shiny bulbs, pick up a non-threatening mid-sized shrub for the living room? But that's exactly the point. It wouldn't be hard at all. Like so many of the opportunities America provides, it would be as simple as pressing the big red staples button. It would be wonderfully uncomplicated to chow down on whatever I want in whatever restaurant I wanted. It would have been nice if the Gentile girl next door was a dating option when I was growing up. It would be so gosh darn simple for my ears to bask in the audio glow of Mariah Carey singing to me about all it is that she wants for Christmas. These facile pleasures have been the precise and constant challenges facing us American Jews. There's always been an unstated national presumption, sometimes even stated, that graduating from one's backward-looking traditions and drinking from the goblet of cosmopolitanism makes one truly American. The pull of the cushioned rope of assimilation can beckon ever so convincingly. After all, one would be in the company of a Pulitzer Prize-winning Jewish author if you believed in abhorring homogeneity and insularity, exclusion and segregation, the redlining of neighborhoods, the erection of border walls and separation barriers between Jews and their fellow countrymen. No less a towering figure than Eleanor Roosevelt, that matriarch of American morality, once lamented that the difficulty is that the country is still full of immigrant Jews, very unlike ourselves. I don't blame them for being as they are. I know what they've been through in other lands, and I'm glad they have freedom at last, and I hope they'll have the chance among us to develop all there is in them. But it takes a little time for Americans to be made. If one's entire framework of being is to be American, there's no reason not to embrace all of this country's aesthetic, cultural, and even spiritual offerings. Isn't it icky and embarrassing to have to stick out as different, you might argue? Isn't love, love? Aren't barriers bad? These questions aren't easy to answer. Nor, mind you, are they new. As early as Abraham, Jews were constantly asked to pick up and put themselves on the other side of the river and an angle to the rest of mankind fundamentally at odds with the culture. 
To become a Jew has meant to be alienated from the rest of society, wrote the 20th century theologian Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. The destiny of Avraham HaIvri, the lonely Abraham, has always accompanied the Jew. After all, the Almighty himself is the lonely one. Each individual should possess the strength to pitch his tent on one bank of the river while society lives on the other. Now, it hardly takes a rabbinic genius to realize that this statement presents its share of problems. If Jews are forever apart, can we ever become truly American? Or are we, like some of our most nefarious haters, have often accused us of being perpetual strangers who can never really fit in? Louis Brandeis addressed this question straight on. A man, he wrote, is a better citizen of the United States for being also a loyal citizen of his state and of his city, for being loyal to his family and to his profession or trade, for being loyal to his college or lodge, will likewise be a better man and a better American for doing so. He was merely repurposing one of Judaism's most ancient bits of insight for a modern age. Universalism is too vague an abstraction. You can only truly belong to a larger collective if you are first rooted in a specific tradition of your own. Put bluntly, it's precisely apartness that makes our togetherness possible. Which brings me back to my kids and why they know to skip that bit where the Octonauts submarine reaches the North Pole during that very special holiday episode. The recently departed and sorely missed Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs taught us that pride in our unique traditions to the exclusion of those of others, but not to their detriment, can be a lesson in what he called the dignity of difference. That Hanukkah occurs in winter, that it happens in proximity to that other big holiday, gives us Jewish parents an opportunity to remind our children again of the beauty and necessity of our boundaries, of who we are and why we are this way, and of why we have no interest in picking up the traditions, even those holly jolly ones of our Gentile friends and neighbors. By doing so, by delighting in Maccabees and Latkas and dreidels, rather than reveling in Dancer and Prancer and Rudolph, we do not shut ourselves in or lock ourselves out. Instead, we pridefully shine a light of our own and remind others that this is what real diversity looks like. Not a mishmash of interchangeable ideas that all look and feel the same, but a mosaic of unique and distinct traditions coming together under one glorious tent. And if you feel like the only kid in town, without a Christmas tree, there's that ever-present list of people who are Jewish, just like you and me. Our Gentile of the Week is Donald Lawrence. He's a songwriter and producer of gospel music as well as a vocal coach, a very big deal in the gospel world. He joined us for our live show at the General Assembly of the Jewish Federations of North America in Chicago. He chatted with us about all things gospel music and he asked us what is quite possibly the best Gentile question we've had in years. Have a listen. Yes, they will. 
our Gentile of the week this evening is gospel legend Donald Lawrence. He's a singer, songwriter, composer, and producer. He's won Grammy Awards and Stellar Awards, and his most recent project is an album called Goshen. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, first off, have you ever been around this many Jews at one time? You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, a, fair, I, a fair answer. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but you know what? What's interesting to me, it seems like everyone knows everyone. Is this like a family reunion or it's, like... It is sort of like a family reunion. <laughs> yeah. I think that's beautiful. It's a great energy. It just seems like everybody came in and then you've seen each other before and you know everybody. Like everyone is related. <laughs> They do have an annual convention. So a lot of these people have probably met each other at conventions, but, it, but, but you're not wrong. Okay. That there is, there's this game that Jews play called Jewish Geography, where if two Jews get together with nothing, they only, like, one's from LA and one's from Miami, and they meet and they start talking. They only have to get to their children, their aunts, their fathers-in-law, before uh, college roommates, before they found Some, something. Yeah. Somebody I think that's went, beautiful, honestly. Yeah. It's like, really it's like uh, six degrees of no bacon. That <laughs> 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 so... We were told that you came here from church. Is that true? No, not. I came here from a show. From oh, you came theater, from a show. Oh, theater. okay. Yeah, actually, yeah. All right. Uh, I went to um, see, seen it many times, but I went to see Wicked because my oh. education is in musical theater. That's, oh, okay. That's so it's I like studied. a different. Yeah, so, yeah. It's Cincinnati like a, Conservatory. Uh, a different kind of church. Oh, the theater, right? Uh, yeah. Theater, <laughs> theater is a spiritual experience every time mm. you go. So, yeah, that was a different kind of church today. I totally buy that. So, my fanboying is when I found out that you were once the vocal coach for En Vogue. Oh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. which was like, yeah. I did, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. so my question, and of course, that's not your, do you still do vocal coaching as well? Not as much because I'm so, so busy, but every now and then, you know, I would say vocal producing in the studio for someone for an album. So let's like go back. I mean, that's yeah. 20 or 30 years now. Yeah. And I mean, they were so extraordinary, those those four women. Was three oh, yeah. women or four? Just four. Four, uh -huh. four women. And I'm shocked. I guess I shouldn't be that they had a coach or they needed a coach. And my question is, and again, I'm speaking from total ignorance. I can't sing and you know, not my field. <laughs> but when you're working with people who already have so much talent, what are they reaching out to you for? It's um, to take the talent, find its strengths and find its weaknesses and show them how to even better deliver it. It's kind of like someone who has muscles, but they still have a trainer. Mm -hmm. um, with In Vogue, um, it's like Broadway. You have to be a triple threat. You have to act and sing and dance. So back then, they wanted their vocals to be as crisp when they were performing as they were recording. So it was about getting them to be able to deliver all the finesse while doing the dancing and the heels and the wardrobe because fashion was a big thing. So they had they talk about this to this day. I used to make them run in place with their heels on and sing every <laughs> song. We would do it over and over and over till the muscle remembered that it would do it. And that was one of the things they really talk about even to this day about he wore us out doing that. But when they got on the stage, they say, thank you to this day. When we hit the stage, the vocals are right and we can dance. We're not out of breath. So it was, it was stuff like that that you take and you coach them. So it's not really teaching them to sing. It's more so taking what they have and coaching it and getting to a place to where it just works. You might call that structural engineering. Maybe. <laughs> Vocal structural engineering. Yeah. I'm <laughs> so, impressed. Yeah. I, I want to add one more layer of threat to this, which is, you know, you sing gospel music. So you're not just, you know, singing and dancing, but you're also in essence, I think, praying, right? You're trying to kind of make sure that the music, that the work that you do, that the music that you sing really kind of, you know, comes out of the heart and, mm -hmm. and, and connects with God. Now, look, I, I go to synagogue and, and I try this. Uh, I'm a horrendous singer. The idea of singing in front of other people is really strange to me. 
But moreover, I really wonder, because this is something I think about a lot. How do you do this? How do you get yourself to a point where you're sitting and saying, like, I am going to sing for God. I'm going to sing with other people words of prayers and hallelujahs and just really kind of open up my soul in front of other people. How do you get to that zone? Well, I think it's two to threefold. I think that there is a song that speaks to God, but then there's a song that comes from God that speaks to people. So I think it's it really depends on what message you're you're given. I, I think that a lot of my messages reach out there to inspire people. So lyrically, I write in second person to talk to people. It may be a message from God that says, hey, I see that you are going through this, but this is the way out of it. This is how if you've been through a, a situation where you've been very sick and now you're healed and I speak about healing. So I think that when you start thinking about inspiring people, it's very easy because I think that we're call to heal the world some kind of way. Wherever we are, it makes it easier when I know that I can say something that can help somebody just to get through the week. I think that spiritual music is the only music that can help people get through the week when you've had a bad week, when you've lost someone, if you've lost a job, if you went through a bad thing. So I think when you put that there, it's really easy because you look and you see someone's life just change. You see you look into someone's eyes where the light had dimmed, and all of a sudden the light comes back. When you experience that, it's it's no greater feeling in the world. You know, they, they, there's a story about the founder of the Hasidic movement called uh-huh. the Baal Shem Tov, who sometimes stood and just meditated for hours before he felt he was ready to begin praying, just like to get himself into this mindset. What, what's your pregame routine? Like, what, what's your? How do you kind of prepare to get to the point where you're just like going on stage? And it's all fire and the, these connections that you talk about so beautifully occur. Oh, I, I think the quiet. I think that when you can be quiet and you can sit, I think it centers you. It centers you. It helps you focus. And I think that when the more focused you are when you step out on stage, if you're really in tune, you feel the whole room. You feel if there's someone sad, you you just feel it's it's a gift that I don't think that's quite explainable, but you just know when you get there. I think the greatest entertainers, whether they were doing gospel music or soul music or rock music, they feel their audience. That's it's just something that's innate for for artists. It's interesting though. Is there a difference between, you know, as you call it spiritual music and say rock music, or do you think like every music? I think music all music is, is spiritual. Right. I really do. I, so I really, really do. Some people try to do, um divide it when it comes to things that lean more religious or that, but I think all music is spiritual. I think it's from spirit to spirit. So it's so interesting. You were classically trained. You studied mm-hmm. at Cincinnati Conservatory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you you do secular music also. But mm-hmm. I mean, what sort of sparked your interest in spiritual music, in gospel music? I mean, what made you sort of follow that path? Well, it was it's just my upbringing. My, my parents were all, I come from very strict church, um, Pentecostal church, actually. So I come from very strict Pentecostal background. And I think that, you know, it's just my path. It, it's the thing that makes me happy. So doing gospel music and blending all of the knowledge that I've learned, I, I really come through my music. When you hear my music, you hear the theater influence, you hear the urban music and R&B influence, you hear the gospel influence, you hear, hear it all. But I think that for me, I enjoy inspiring people when it comes to their spirituality. And I think that that's why I picked that role. So in within Judaism, there are a lot of internal divides, right? You'll hear mm-hmm. Leah was just talking about Hasidic, you know, which is a, a branch of orthodoxy of the most strict, most observant Jews. There are people who identify as reform or liberal Jews who would be less overtly, noticeably strict in which commandments they follow. And then there's a, a million other varieties. I know within black Christianity, you know, there's Pentecostal, there's Church of God oh, in Christ. Yeah. There's Church of God in Christ, there's holiness, yeah. you know, and Pentecostal, that's one whole scene. Then, you know, there are Baptists who would say, I would never, you know, I don't believe in gifts. I don't believe in speaking in tongues. Uh-huh. I don't, like, do you find your audience coming 
specifically from Pentecostal communities or do you tend, obviously you're trying to reach as many people as possible, but do you ever bump up against these internal divisions within black Christianity? You know what? That's such a great question. It's, it, it's really interesting because what you just said, I saw the total parallel on my side when you, when you spoke about the different types of Jewish communities. So yeah, you know what? When I was younger, yes. It's not as divided anymore, but when I was younger, it was very strict. When I was growing up, they would tell our congregation, um, don't go to the Baptist church because they're not as strict as we are. And they, they kind of, it w- would be that. It's not that, it's not really like that anymore. So I think we all blend together now more, but early on, yeah, it was a big divide. And it would even be a, where you would say, Pentecostal is holiness, it would be a divide there. There were this type of Pentecostal and this type of Pentecostal and this type of Pentecostal. I have a lot of great friends there. Oh, Kojic, which people think Kojic is such a strict Pentecostal. Church of God in Christ. Church of God in Christ is yeah. what that means. Um, I come from an organization called FBH, which is Fire Baptized Holiness, and they thought that Kojic Fire was— Fire Baptized Holiness. holiness and they yeah. thought that Kojic was weak. They thought that they were— <laughs> like, this sounds very familiar to <laughs> oh, everyone in this room. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, what, you're like, that's the Baptist what, church what, I don't go right. to. <laughs> what, what, what you said reminded yeah. me of that. They would say, yeah, they are large. <laughs> I, I have great friends there, and I make them laugh. I would say, yeah, you know, they would tell us that y'all were a large nation, but you were a weak nation. <laughs> that just meant that you let a little bit, we're a little bit too liberal, you know. So as our Gentile of the Week, okay. one of the great honors that we bestow on the Gentile of the Week is to invite them to ask questions of us, an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you sent in a couple fabulous questions that we would love to answer for you. So okay. I don't know if you remember the questions you emailed to us. I think so, yeah. One of them was about whiteness and race. Do you want to ask us that question? Because we would love to tackle it for you. Yeah, um, I think that, um, and I, I, you know how people always say, well, my community, I can't speak for my whole community because... <laughs> I know we can, we absolutely not, can, yeah. and we do. <laughs> no worries there. But I, 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 I sent in a question, I said, you know... Um, Black people tend to look at racism based on skin color. So I said, we would wonder why does a Jewish person and a white person have racism when you're the same color? Like it's white and white. And I said, I don't know if people really know that through our eyes, we parallel racism with skin color. So what is that? Like, um, do you see yourself as a different race or do you all see yourself as white and you're just a different religion? What it, an incredible question. There? It is an incredible question. And I think one of the more profound questions of, of our moment in time. It's also a question I've thought myself a lot about. I come from Israel. I'm a ninth generation Israeli. And literally none of this ever occurred to me because it's simply not a thing that people discuss in Israel. And I come here and start hearing conversations about Jews being somehow white, uh, which strikes me as preposterous. For a whole host of reasons. Uh, first of all, because the whole kind of notion of, you know, obsessions with race theory uh, as a grandson of a Holocaust survivor strikes me as a, a little bit too uh, 19th century German creepy. Uh, second of all, because this whole idea of what constructs a white person kind of strikes me as, you know, a, a little bit muddled. But moreover, if you study a little bit of Jewish history and you understand the sort of huge dispersal of Jews throughout history, mostly by all kinds of forced expulsions, And then you travel the Jewish world today uh, and you pray in the synagogue in Marrakesh uh, with Moroccan Jews and in the synagogue in Hong Kong uh, with Asian Jews and in synagogues in Ethiopia with Ethiopian Jews. You see that these people from from our known racial standpoint 
manifest themselves very differently. And yet the one thing that unites them is the fact that they're all part of the same tradition, uh, all part of the same, uh, I think the best word, and, and Mark is very fond of that term, really all part of the same family. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, we're also a religion with beliefs, uh, but we belong to something uh, more complicated than that, which most, I think, non-Jews have a very, very hard time explaining, which is why they very easily sort of like to shove us, or in some cases, shove us into this category of being white. And I think a lot of Jews have problems grappling with, which is why some Jews also think, well, you know, maybe that's the thing that's closest to us. I think if you're looking for the best definition of what we are, which is the most historically, uh, scientifically, emotionally, spiritually, and religiously, theologically sound definition is Jews are the indigenous people of the land of Israel. Okay, that's a great, that's a great answer. Um, and some of that, I, I asked the question, I, I know that now, but many years ago I didn't. I would always wonder what was the divide, but thank you no, for that. That's really, that was a great answer. a really, really good question. And I think it's something that a lot of Jews are thinking about, especially, you know, in the, in the past few years as sort of racial reckonings have, you know, been just part of the conversation in America in a really important way. I mean, it is a little weird for Jews, right? Because I think even for those of us, and of course Jews are from all over and look all sorts of, of ways, um, just like everyone else. But for those of us who are white passing, it is really complicated because you understand how in many ways you are not the victim of overt prejudice based on skin color. But something about being Jewish, the insidiousness of anti-Semitism is that it doesn't actually matter, Right the conspiracy of anti-Semitism is that Jews are so dangerous because they pass as white, right? Like there's so much complicated wow. nuance to it and it's it's so layered. And so that's why white supremacists hate Jews. And yeah, you're saying, you know, oh, you look just like them, but actually there's something so deeply ingrained in sort of like anti-Semitic beliefs mm-hmm. that, that that actually it's, everything is used against us, right? You're either, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. And I think that, um, I'm glad you asked because it is, it's such a, it's such a, when you, when you put, put it the way you did, it, it sort of, you're like, yeah, that, how does this make sense? But I think that, I think that Jews are in a really, really odd spot almost in, in all of these conversations that are trying to acknowledge where we stand, but also, you know, be, be part of these conversations. Wow. I, you know, I've, I've almost nothing to add to that. I would only just, I guess, just say that it might be interesting to you to know that those whiteness standards that I know infect all of our communities where black people often will favor the lighter skin, whatever, those sort of regnant and stupid standards of white beauty standards, Mm -hmm. they infect Judaism as well. Jewry, I should say, Jews as well. Everyone knows that if if you're Jewish and you have a blonde child, oh, and look at her, you know? And I think a lot of us have lived that. I do that. (laughs) I I have a very Aryan child. Her name's Edith Cohen. She's she's fine. And part of it is... (laughs) I don't know how it happened. <laughs> the Cohen's going to give her away every, every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, you know, part of that is is the sort of infection of a kind of American whiteness standard. Part of it is probably, I think, sometimes a relief that if ever there was some sort of, God forbid, Holocaust again, where they came looking for the, you know, who looks Jewish, who doesn't, that, you know, oh, that maybe this kid would escape and you hear about those stories. And a lot of it is just that within every community, there's a kind of stupid sorting of people like trying to find reasons to say I'm better than you and climb on top. Gotcha. Um, but I think it's a very profound question. And Thank I, you and for I, that. You know, Thank that's you. interesting that you that you wonder about that. Yeah, you know? I, 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 because I, I know some people in my community who weren't, they didn't understand, but we're, we're all more enlightened now. So I, I thank you. God indigenous people of Israel is what you said, correct? Indigenous people of the land of Israel. But look, God. usually we, we only allow one question. 
but but you sent another question, which struck us as so profound and amazing. So good. We're going to break with a seven-year-long tradition here and allow two <laughs> questions because this one is just too good. Okay. So you asked us, and I quote from your email, so these bagels and locks. <laughs> it gets better. These bagels and lock, locks. What's the obsession? Wait, is this like a modern-day salute to the fish and loaves miracle? <laughs> now, for those of us in the room who don't know your scripture, <laughs> tell people what the fish and loaves miracle is. Well, you know how Jesus fed the, the multitude with the fish and the five loaves of bread. You don't know that. <laughs> our, our story ends a little bit before yours begins. Like, just saying. Am I like, so I was like, so. We haven't read our, the sequel. Most of us okay. have not watched the sequel. Right? Okay, all right. So. We're back on the Sorcerer's Stone. Okay, well, over here in holiness, we know the, the, yeah. the, the, the fish and loaves story. So I was like, well, maybe the fish and bread then, and this is the new so version we, of it, bagels and we locks. We gathered around okay. the deli table. <laughs> no, the appetizing store. The appetizing table, store. Okay. To discuss whether there could be anything to this. Because it's brilliant. Thank you. It's amazing. By the way, someone please open a bagel and locks store called fish and loaves. Like, post Oh, that would be great. That's a great yeah. idea. That's a great idea. It would have to close for Passover. Okay. Yeah. But many of our stores do anyway. Okay. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to that. It just happened. It's I just incredible. It's, so our question to you is, have you ever tried locks? Um, Smoked fish? No. Okay. You will understand. Okay, no. It's awfully good. The answer is... You know what to send is a thank you. Yes. Right. <laughs> We're going to send you okay. a platter. I've had bagel, but... No. But not with locks. No. So will you, if we send you some, will you try it? Let me see about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's smoked salmon. Hold on, wait. I'm not selling it well. Thought, okay. like, no. so this is so fascinating <laughs> to me. Like the thought of smoked salmon just strikes you. as like, geez. It just looks not cooked. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sushi on a bagel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know what? We'll, we'll quit while we're behind. Donald Lawrence, we have an official unorthodox certificate thanking uh, you for being our Gentile. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And you have definitely got another fan I will be listening to this oh, podcast. Thank you. We will be listening thank you. to you. And vice versa. Right. Thank you and so if you much. Want, if you want more of Donald Lawrence, just go to donaldlawrence.com and you can get his music and so much more. So right. thank you again. Thank you, for guys, for having me. You bet. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I do. To our Gentile friends. Wishing you all who celebrate whatever holiday you celebrate this ecumenical holiday season a very merry, joyous, freilicher holiday. I have a shout out to my amazing mother-in-law, Wendy Cohen. She just had a bit of surgery and she is getting through it like a champ and she's so strong and amazing and we are just wishing her all the best in her recovery. Rafua Shlema, Wendy. May you, may you look out your window to see 
large inflatable Hanukkah swag on your front lawn. May the Hanukkah Lama bring you nothing but peace and love. And we need you to recover, Wendy, because Edith needs, needs her babysitter back. Also, because you're the best travel agent in the world, as I know from having worked through that. And uh, my Mazel Tov this week is to um, Sound Effects and their junior core, their junior ROTC of Sound Bites. These are the choirs that I was talking about earlier. My daughter, Anna, was singing in this community choir. It's a beautiful thing. And um, I just, I, they're, you know, to see that choirs are back singing um, in person, live, making music. I, of course, am a huge fan of choral music and in particular caroling. This choir was not doing Christian music and caroling, but I want to, why don't I extend my mazel tov to all the people who, who sing out in the holiday season, in Charlie Brown's holiday season. To all the human, carolers. Human to, and To Lama. Carol Burnett, <laughs> Carol O'Connor, to all the carols we know and love. <laughs> All our listeners named Carol, because there are a lot of them. <laughs> Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, Simwa, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Daron Rusquet, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem. And mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. You can send your holiday letter snail mail to P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 13001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Phil Bressler of Beit Am, the mid-Willamette Valley Jewish community. Did they say Willamette? Willamette? I'm not sure. But he's the rabbi closest, as far as I could tell, to Jenny Lee, daughter of the great Jewish Santa Claus. And he is our rabbinic supervisor this week. And we come to you from the snow-covered studios of the Hanukkah Lama himself, Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. And a happy Lamaga to you. Mm-hmm.